1: It was Friday, October 4, 1996, and representatives from both the ARL and Super League sat in the courtroom waiting for the decision. Ken Arthurson was nervous, but was reassured by the overwhelming victory the ARL had secured in February. Within minutes of Justice John Lockhart opening his mouth to deliver the judgment of the full court, however, everything had changed. This is Part 1 of The Appeal, the 31st chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy?
0: Fantastic, mate. How are you?
1: I'm good. It, it's Always good to get to the end of the season. So, this is part one of two, but it is the conclusion of our 1996 season. So, the next time we introduce a chapter, it will actually be very close to the Australian Super League being a reality, not just a a concept or a vision, if you will.
0: Well, at this time of the season, every podcaster and historian is playing injured, mate. And um, (laughs) it'll be good to finish off the grand final with a big one.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we'll try to temper our celebrations on Mad Monday, but we're not quite there yet. So let's get on with the show. I said that Super League is very close to being a reality at this point in the story. And the only reason that is true is because of News Limited's win at appeal against the ARL. So we're going to spend this episode going through that court case and how it all played out. And then the second and concluding part of this chapter, will look at the fallout within the clubs. So there's a lot of uh, really interesting stuff to get through. Let's just start with 1996. In our last chapter, we framed it as kind of a normal season of sorts, at least in comparison to 1995. But of course, there was this giant spectre hanging over the season and A lot of things were in doubt because of this appeal. It was cutting it very fine with the date of the appeal, so it was known that it wasn't going to be possible to get a resolution until very late in the season. Meanwhile, you've got legal bills sending the ARL broke, and it was a very worrying and uncertain time for both sides.
0: I keep thinking about the legal bills and the Eldorado for the law firms.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, how many QCs have have they got on their books on both sides?
0: About five grand a day back in 96.
1: Yeah. But so the appeal was to be heard over seven days late in May, and it was assumed that the judges would take about three months to make that decision. So I thought to get started, we should introduce some of the cast members that we haven't talked about or are new to the story, and that starts with the three federal court judges who are going to be deciding the matter. So you had John Lockhart, Ronald Sackville, and John Von Duser. So Birchett's out, and we've got three federal court judges who are going to be deciding the fate for both sides. In terms of the lawyers involved, you had a lot of the same people that were there in the initial trial, but one big addition was Tom Hughes, who was brought in for News Limited, which meant that you had Bob Ellicott of the ARL and Tom Hughes on News Limited leading the charge for their sides. They were both former federal attorney generals for respectively the Fraser and uh, McMahon liberal government. So big hitters in politics and the law. And one thing I thought of when I was you know, reading about these guys, it was mentioned that it was the first time they'd ever opposed each other in court. And I wondered if that's something lawyers think about, you know, like, oh, I'm up against Davidson, you know, like you're going down, Roberts. Like,
0: Definitely it is. And I reckon it's almost like rugby league. It'd be like, you know, he's in good form, Hughes. <laughs> <have> to- yeah.
1: <laughs> I think some of the reports from the courtroom bear that out, but uh, in a much more genteel way than it does on the rugby league field. So one back and forth between Ellicott and Hughes had them deciding who owed who an apology which is very rugby league but then at one point bob ellicott said your honor i didn't start it he snaps at me there's a cat food called snappy tom <laughs> uh, and, and, <laughs> and with that the appeal judges like broke into laughter so uh some hilarious stuff there from the qc but I think you're right. There is a rugby league element to it, even if it is framed in a much different way.
0: When you've got two sides that are warring so hard, and then it's this sort of fraternal relationship that's kind of amusing.
1: And is it the same sort of thing where they go each other hard in court, but then have a beer afterwards and, you know, they're best mates again?
0: Well, the courtroom's like a um, Phillip Street boardroom brawl, but without the brawling and the kegs. (laughs) (laughs)
1: So I wanna discuss the hearing itself and in this initial section we're gonna focus on the actual argument from News Limited, what the appeal was based around and how they were going to try to turn around this like incredible loss in the original case. And there were a few ways that they attacked the findings. Firstly was to question Burchett's findings with the idea that it was emotion over law. So Hughes put it to the court that he he actually described Bichette's decision as strange, even bizarre, and talked about Ellicott's argument in the first case as being calculated to appeal to the heart rather than to the head.
0: Well, you and I discussed that earlier in the series where it did feel like that in parts, didn't it?
1: Yeah, there were definitely, even though, as I mentioned, I think it was oversold, all these, you know, claims about Peter Moore corrupting himself and all of that. They were like very minor references within a long judgment, but there definitely seemed to be, I called it the castle effect when we discussed the initial trial, and we certainly found that. There are a few strange moments. I think one of those, which was argued by News Limited at Appeal, was that Burchett weighed too heavily Ken Cowley's front door comment saying you know if we come back we'll be going through the front door so Charles Sweeney who was another QC on the News Limited side Jenny Curtin reporting on the court case wrote that Sweeney argued that the judge had elevated the remark to the status of an unqualified undertaking and attacked News Limited for continuing to secretly plan Super League but I think there's something to that that yeah, but... but- is, it, is it illegal for Ken Cowley to say that he's going to come in through the front door and then not do that?
0: Well, there's no contract there because there's no consideration from Arco. And it's just like if everyone that lied in the negotiation was uh, breaking the law, there'd be no more negotiations.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I agree with that. One funny aspect of that, which I wish I had read when we were covering that initial front door comment was... In the aftermath of the Super League raid, when Arco asked Cowley, you know, what happened to the front door, Cowley's response was, well, I thought if I signed all your players up, I'd be in a better position to come in through the front door.
0: <laughs> but like all the Paco backflips we've gone through in the last 15 episodes, you know, like it's.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Arco didn't seem to mind that too much. But that was certainly one of the thrusts of News Limited's argument that Birchett had got away from the actual law and was carried by emotion to some extent. That was, of course, not going to be enough to overturn the decision. They had to make some legal arguments. And a big part of that was the idea of fiduciary duty. So in the first court case, I must have read the phrase exclusionary provision about a thousand times within that you know 200 page document, yeah. and that was of course referring to the loyalty agreement in the appeal document it was really interesting because that was still there, but by far the biggest element was this idea of fiduciary duty, so what the clubs owed to the league and how that impacted on the actual judgment. So we'll get to the findings of that when we get to the decision, but so what news are basically arguing is the clubs didn't owe fiduciary duties to the ARL or to the other clubs, and that came back to the idea of competition. So one of their examples to argue this was that they compared the clubs to McDonald's restaurants and said that individual franchisees at McDonald's are dependent on the other franchises for their success that didn't mean they owe duties to each other to, uh, in the exact words, keep their premises clean or maintain the image of the brand.
0: I thought that was the weirdest example because that's exactly what they've got to do. If you breathe wrong at McDonald's, they take your license away, your franchise license. So,
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. If I go to Wollongong McDonald's and have a bad burger... I'm not thinking, oh, Wollongong McDonald's is bad. I'm thinking, oh, McDonald's burgers aren't very good these days.
0: Yeah, it's like the strictest franchise agreement known to man, apparently. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, as far as their fiduciary responsibility goes, I don't know where I stand on that, because I think they do owe the league something, you know, for making the clubs.
1: It's actually a really interesting argument, and we've got a lot to discuss on that front. One of the things that factors into the judgment is the idea of goodwill. Goodwill's a collective thing that the Brisbane Broncos by themselves mean nothing. It's the Brisbane Broncos playing in a competition that gives them, you know, this collective goodwill. They're drawing on the reputation of the league and the benefits they get from playing in that competition. But on the other side of things, there's strong arguments against fiduciary duties that we'll get to when we get into the judgment. But when I was thinking about the fact that I was seeing this phrase and I'm not, you know, very competent in legalese. So it washed over me the first few hundred times (laughs) I I read the phrase fiduciary duties until I was like, I'm hearing this phrase a lot. I'm going to have to learn what it means. And then I was thinking, if this is so important, if this is such a big part of the argument, why didn't I come across it in the first court case? And this actually played into News Limited's argument. They argued that it was in their argument, but Burchett basically didn't even mention this aspect of their argument in his judgment. So Burchett basically ignored it, made his judgment on other grounds, you know, coming down on this exclusionary provision idea, but in their eyes, ignoring the fiduciary duty argument.
0: Well, this makes me wonder about his judgment, whether he was you know, seeking ways to avoid scoring points for News Limited, you know, which I'm sure we'll get to as well. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's like he's avoiding um, the minefields for the, uh, the side he wants to win, almost.
1: Well, what is the responsibility of a judge? Does a judge need to, like, answer every aspect of an argument in making his decision? Or is it enough for the judge to find it wrong on these three accounts and therefore, you know, the entire argument is invalid?
0: Well, I think it's that. Yeah, I think it's the latter. But, I mean... um. As we see in the appeal judgment, (laughs) he wasn't uh, injured too well on any of them. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, as we all know, the ARL didn't win much of this appeal. And a big part of that was the main thing still being contested was the loyalty agreement. So, while Burchett didn't find an exclusionary provision, News Limited went back to the argument that they had been signed under duress. Charles Sweeney, again, arguing for the clubs, said that they were intimidated by threats from John Quayle, that, you know, the exact quote, that not signing would be seen as gross disloyalty, which is pure dictator speak, isn't it?
0: (laughs) There was less duress in the uh, deer hunter Russian roulette scene from the Viet Cong
1: soldiers.
0: (laughs) It's like, it's as clear a case of duress as you're ever going to get.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's how I see it too. Obviously, Bachet viewed it differently, and we'll get to the conclusion of the argument soon. But before we get to the actual judgment, I just wanted to backtrack a bit because what the appeal document offered, which Bichette's judgment didn't, was some transcripts, excerpts from various meetings, you know, documents in the planning and blitzkrieg phase of the war. So if you're going to read both the Bichette judgment and this appeal document, you're looking at four to five hundred pages. If you're only going to choose one, I would definitely recommend this one because it definitely goes into a lot more nitty gritty in terms of all the dealings that went on, you know, between mid-1994 through April 1995. So a really interesting document that I think it's worth us backtracking a bit and going back over some of the things we've already discussed over the course of this war. You know, reading in this appeal document made me think that we've been immersed in this world for so long now, it might be a good opportunity to reflect on this earlier period of war using this appeal document. Cool. Cool. So the first thing I want to discuss is the preliminary meeting between Ken Cowley and Ken Arthurson in November 1994. So one thing I I think it does is to illustrate that mutual respect that characterised their dealings throughout, and I think it's also a really good pitch from Cowley. So the statement in the appeal document from Cowley to Arthurson is, I would like to take Rugby League to the rest of the world. If you come with us, we will make the code a much stronger code. I love the game, Ken. I want you to know that I'd never do anything to harm it. What you fellows have done for the game has been terrific, but news can take the game to the next step. I think leaving aside that I want you to know I'd never do anything to harm it, which didn't work out too well, <laughs> I really thought that was interesting, the way the two of them always seemed to get on and there was this genuine respect between them.
0: It's nice, but it's also a bit of that, you know, these corporate guys just say the right thing on the surface.
1: Yeah, definitely true. And and maybe Arthurson fell for it too much. I, I think his naivety comes across quite a bit, you know, in this very same meeting when he said... We've got legally binding contractual arrangements with Nine to the year 2000. We can't break that agreement legally, nor should we consider doing so morally, because Nine was there with an offer for the TV rights when the industry was in disarray and nobody else would make an offer. I think maybe if George Piggins had got in Arco's ear and said, be as loyal to Packer as Packer is to you, <laughs> it, it, you know, it might have changed things a bit.
0: I wish he had a crystal ball at that meeting so we could see what was going to happen with Nine. Yeah, Imagine all all the saved heartache.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and we do have a bit to get to with the nine side of things. But going on to the November meeting where those first loyalty agreements were signed by the ARL clubs, they um, provided a transcript of what Barry Maranta said at that meeting when he was questioned about the Broncos' involvement in the Super League concept. He's quoted as saying, We came down today to find out what the basis of the discussion was all about. Comments that somehow in a clandestine way the Broncos have been involved seems to be good media hype that has no basis in truth. What we're trying to do is find out what's going on. Which, I mean, what are the Broncos going to do? Admit to the fact that they, you know, designed Super League and were like the driving force behind it. But at the same time, like the Broncos were just so full of shit the entire (laughs) way and it's always that rugby league thing of like just going a little bit too far <laughs> like <laughs> like denying something so vehemently that later comes out to be you know completely true
0: it's the metaphorical holding down in the tackle until you're penalized
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, and another um interesting thing in that november meeting was they quoted an unnamed club official who I would put my house on the fact that it's George Piggins. (laughs) Um, Very Piggins-esque. But the transcript quotes, Another speaker said to Mr. Arthurson, Earlier today you said in the press there's one thing that's not negotiable. That's the control of the game. I'm sure we all agree with that. I think as a result of today, I would like you to go out and say there are two things that are not negotiable. One is the control of the game, and the second one is that there will be 20 teams in the competition. And Arthurson replied, Okay, how does everyone feel about that? to which he received no dissent. So the unnamed speaker, who may or may not have been George Pegan, said, isn't it a fact that we're all in, provided we meet the criteria for the next five years, if we stick together, which Arthurson agreed to, and you know, a public comment that all the clubs were going to stand alone and preserve their identity. So smart from the unnamed club official and a giant rod for the ARL's back. And going on to that, November to February period, where the two camps were meeting at times, there was a view that maybe it could happen until that February meeting stamped it out. And I think part of the problem from the Super League side of things is that it was just a bad model. So what we got in the appeal document was the details of the plan that was presented to the ARL at this time, which was for the Super League to run on top of the 20-team comp, not in place of, with the existing 20 clubs to be shareholders in these licensed Super League teams. Madness. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't know why the pitch wasn't to replace the ARL competition. And you, and I, I understand that ARL wasn't going to give up ownership of the game, but surely they'd be more tempted to work with News Limited if it was... A model that made sense.
0: Well, I think it's clear why that they wanted to say you can keep your own clubs and you know play in the Mickey Mouse section and still own some of the good competition, but it could be like Afghani warlords, you know?
1: Yeah, I don't know why the pitch wasn't, we've got Rupert Murdoch, we can get this Super League on TVs around the world. It's going to be the best of the best every week. 12 teams and it's win-win. It's a better competition. We solve the Sydney problem. We get more people interested. Why do you need to hang on to? Like, how is that ever going to work? Twenty teams playing in a national competition that was under a Super League.
0: I think of the amount of expense in that as well. Yeah, but I mean, um, we've seen how great the NRL is, and the rest of the world still don't care. <laughs> like, <you know>.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so there is a lot of hindsight in this and but it just really struck me reading this again for this episode just the instead of giving this non-committal you'd better talk to Kerry but not really engaging with the Super League idea even if they were wary of News Limited and by January February 1995 there was clear evidence that Not everything was above board and something was going on. Maybe the ARL didn't want to deal with News Limited at all at this point. They would commissioned like report after report talking about too many Sydney teams and they need to change the way the competition is structured. Couldn't they have said to Kerry Packer, why don't we do our own Super League? And, you know, if News Limited want to come to the party and you guys can come to an arrangement, that's one thing. But just this... Sputtering along and assuming that it's all going to work out, and we've got Kerry Packer to scare everyone off if it doesn't.
0: Well, he was pretty scary. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: His walls were paper with writs, and as what else?
1: Yeah, well, that's the other thing. You did have Kerry Packer there who was quite intransigent about the Super League offer. So maybe there was nothing can be done. And it is ground that we've covered, but it just really struck me reading back the document. and. The last thing I want to say about the transcripts that appear in the appeal document was at that February meeting, Arco wheeling out Colin Love to talk to them after he'd spoken. And Love's statement to the clubs was, you will recall that in November last, you all signed an agreement to remain loyal to the league for the next five years. Our view is that this agreement will withstand any legal challenge. And in that view, we're supported by the opinion of senior counsel. It seems to us, however, that it would be advisable to have the club sign a further agreement pledging loyalty to the league, which supplements and supports the original document, which is, to me, that's further evidence of duress, you know, like Arco wheeling out the lawyer saying... We've already got your signature, so don't try anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, but also, it's such a good agreement in the first one. It's Donald Trump. Has. It's such a good agreement. But you know, still, we'd like to have another one just to <laughs> shore it <Yeah>. up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like Almost two series now, right? What's about 80 hours of content. And I've just come to the realization how futile it is to support something based on the media. You read a few articles in the newspaper and you support Super League or ARL blindly. It's so dumb because... Yeah. It's such a half-assed concept as you just pointed out from Super League and such a pathetic response from the ARL.
1: Yeah, I I guess that should probably be the takeaway from reading this document is like we were doomed from the start, weren't we?
0: Yeah, but it's just like to think that I like, you know, was was backing Super League because it sounded so good when I had no idea what was going on, you know.
1: Yeah, and I on the other hand was ARL must run the game and <laughs> <laughs> So, let's get to the verdict. And you mentioned the naivety of us in just blindly picking a team and staying with it at the time. Our excuse is we were teenagers. <laughs> what I don't get is the, the certainty that people in the press had about the appeal going one way or the other. Yeah. I'm going to single out Rick Allen in the Sun Herald, but I don't want to single him out. You know, very Phil Gould on Steve edmett for me there. <laughs> but... <laughs> But this is something I was seeing all year. So, Allen's quote was, there's more chance of Alan Jones pulling on the boots and packing in at lock for South than there is of a Super League win. Well,
0: I read that quote in the dossier preparation and I thought, well, that's actually not out of the question with Jones and his ego. <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I can do a better <laughs> job than this guy.
1: <laughs> but so, again, it wasn't Rick Allen alone. I was seeing variations of that all year and... What do you know about the law, Rick Allen, or, or anyone else making such a statement? Like, it always just seems to come back to the fact that the ARL won so convincingly at the first court case that no one could get their head around the fact that it all started again at appeal. Mario Fennec, noted legal scholar, came out and said that he'd take his clothes off on national television if just one of Justice Burchett's <laughs> orders is overturned.
0: What? Is he the most rugby league guy we have left? Like It's such a buffoon-like comment. that
1: (laughs) That's up there, but I think even worse is the fact that there was a lot of fear at first that it was going to happen in grand final week. Uh, Thankfully, the judges realised the furor that was going to create, so they pushed it back away. But when it was announced that it was going to be decided on the Friday following the grand final, ARL supporters smelt a rat and... (laughs) It's fixed, and the fact that the fact that Kevin Neal had come out the the week before and said that the judgment was going to be announced on the Friday had ARL supporters thinking that Super League clubs must have received a leak. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Federal Court of Appeals leaks like a rugby league boardroom. <laughs> the justice called up Phil Rothfield and said, "Look, well, don't tell anyone." <laughs>
1: But to me that is just rugby league brain in excelsis. I I love that.
0: <laughs>
1: oh. Almost as good is Kevin Neal refuting that saying I'm down 2 grand after making $2000 bets on the decision date. <laughs>
0: that cannot be real, can it? Is that real?
1: It, it was reported. Roy Masters reported that, so I I give it some credence.
0: What sort of competition is it when the executives a gambling on the outcome of the existence of the game like <laughs> it, like that's the metaphor for why rugby league is what it is
1: yep yeah uh so it was the friday neil lost uh his bets but he gained the credibility of correctly announcing it eventually
0: let me ask you a question like do you think the game would have survived without these knockabouts like if we'd had non no no like it needs the knockabouts but the knockabouts an albatross around its neck
1: i think this whole series is a perverted love letter to rugby league men like you can't have the game without them but you can't advance the game without (laughs) them and at some point we just we need to embrace that yeah there's something beautiful about it as frustrating as it is so a lot of People had a lot of opinions about the court case, and one of those was Ken Arthurson. So the morning of the court case, Arthurson writes in his book, on the stroll to the court, I said to him, mate, we can't possibly lose. I mean, the loyalty contracts for a start would have to be enforceable. They would have to be valid for starters. We're not going to lose that. Uh, that's exactly what is going to be decided, Ken. But you do realize this is what the court case is about. I don't know how he had that certainty that the loyalty contracts would have to be enforceable.
0: Well, his team would be like, you know, putting on a positive face type thing, but they wouldn't be not preparing him for the worst either. So yeah. it, maybe he just didn't want to hear it.
1: Yeah, I think not wanting to hear it. And I think also he was looking at the scoreboard and he saw 100 nil. He didn't see that scoreboard reset.
0: Well, they had Darcy Lawler in the first call case. So. <laughs>
1: So let's get to the decision, and I'm going to give a plain language summation at the start before going into some detail about some of the findings, which I really thought was so interesting. And, and once again, I'd urge people to track down this appeal document. That would, you know, It's readily available on the internet. So firstly, despite Arthurson's confidence, the loyalty commitments were deemed to contain exclusionary provisions and were thus voided. And once that happened, You know, it was basically all over for the ARL. But that basically came down to two factors. One was the idea of competition. So the appeal judges, unlike Burchett, ruled that the clubs were in competition with each other and that binding them to this loyalty agreement undermined that competition. And secondly, by restricting News Limited's ability to recruit players and clubs to its competition, that was deemed a violation of the Trade Practices Act. So interestingly, as much as we talk about duress, it seems that the actual violation doesn't have as much to do with duress as it does to the legality of the agreement itself. Mm. But so with that loyalty agreement gone, then it came down to what loyalty the clubs owed the leagues in legal terms. And what the appeal judges found is that the clubs were only bound to the end of the 1995 season. So we'll get to the reasoning behind that, but that basically meant that the Super League clubs were deemed to be in breach of those terms because of the way they you know, dropped a nuclear bomb on the 1995 season. But apart from that, the rest of Burchett's orders were set aside. Uh, and this was largely on the fa- basis of the fact that players and coaches who weren't parties in the litigation were actually the parties most negatively affected by those orders. And so that was basically how the argument was won. And I know I said plain language, but even reading it now, it doesn't seem very plain language to me. So what I thought we would do to try to hopefully build some of that understanding is to go into some of the findings in detail, how it was argued, what was decided and what it all meant. And and again, this isn't a comprehensive account of the appeal. It's just some things that I was able to understand within those 200 and however many pages. So the first thing I wanted to discuss was how much the history of the league and the decisions the ARL had made over the years, particularly since incorporation, had come back to haunt them. Like It, it was really striking how much Prior dealing the league had with clubs in the years since incorporation actually really negatively affected them in this case, and the start of that is that incorporation was the structural change that allowed the game to take it to the next level, and you know that is why we saw all the, or a big part of the reason why we saw those the great advancement of the game throughout the eighties into the nineties, but what it did was fundamentally change the relationship between the clubs and the league and that ended up working against them in the case so as it's argued in the appeal document the very point of incorporation was to create a separate legal entity to take over the assets and business of the new south wales rugby league so whereas in the past the clubs and the league were inextricably bound this created a level of separation that was then you know used legally against the arl in this case but i should say even though it did hurt them in this case. Separating the league and the clubs remains 1,000% one of the best things the league ever did. Like, you know, we talked about the 48-man committee and all that sort of thing. Like, it, it had to be done, you know. So I'm not saying that the ARL, you know, messed up in making that move. So News argued for some of the decisions taken by the league over the years that showed the ramifications of that separation. Newtown being the first example, which... Wasn't a very good one from the news perspective, as all it showed was that the league's decisions were made in terms of financial viability. But the West case a couple of years later showed that it wasn't the only factor with the league arguing in that case that they were justified because a competition with an uneven number of teams was undesirable. So it wasn't just financial considerations. But it should be noted that West were raising money through guessing competitions. So they're maybe not the best example of a club being excluded (laughs) for non-financial reasons. But more interesting is the Norths and Brisbane, who had both been informed that their continued participation in the league was not a formality. So in 1991, Norths were, you know, they had the anti-cigarette position At the grounds, and you know that was viewed negatively by the league because of their relationship with Winfield. Think about that. Yeah, exactly. And that was used against Norths. You know, basically saying, "Well, you know, if you want to stay in this competition, we can't be having this conflict of interest." Going ahead to the Broncos, who, as John Rebo said, they were threatened with being kicked out almost every year. I don't know how that true that is, but definitely in 1994. They were told that the league had an unfettered right to reject an application for admission by their club.
0: Further evidence that they didn't like finance. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, this is where it gets me because the ARL is doing the right thing to wield a stick and, you know, look after their business interests. That's what business people are supposed to do. But then you can't play the morality card afterwards.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what you also can't do is argue that the club's owe you a fiduciary duty while at the same time saying that you have the right to kick them out at any time on you know less than a year's notice
0: they were developing a new rugby league style fiduciary duty
1: (laughs) (laughs) and this had actually it was brought up in appeal that the clubs had in the past raised the issue of the fact that they had to apply annually to enter the competition so In 1985, the club secretaries voted 11 to 4 in favor of having a three to five year, you know, admission process. That was rejected by the board of the league. And, you know, ever since they stuck with the you apply to re-enter the league every year, which it seems a bit silly to me having to apply every year.
0: And that would offend the hell out of rugby league, man, as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know that Philip Street would have been receiving 16 applications on, on the last day. No, two days uh, after. Submissions were open. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what these historical precedents did was to make it incumbent on the appeal judges to establish the relationship between the clubs and the league in order to work out whether fiduciary duties were owed. And the fact that clubs were having to apply for admission every year, it was argued that works against the fact that there is this fiduciary obligation. We should, at this point, actually define the phrase fiduciary duty. So I I went to the Owen Hodge law firm website who wrote, a fiduciary duty is a legal obligation for one party to act in the best interests of another. So if there was such a relationship between the clubs and the league, then they were you know, basically bound together. One's interests had to serve the others, and therefore trying to leave and start a rival competition was a violation of that. But this was strongly argued against by News Limited in part because of the fact that clubs had to apply for admission. And this goes into the league's own constitution. So Rule 38 says, A club desirous of entering a team in the competition was required to submit an admission. So as news limited argument and was agreed by the appeal judges, if you could be desirous of entering a competition, then logically you could also be not desirous of entering the competition. And so as such, what the appeal judges found was that the contractual obligation of the clubs came to an end at the conclusion of that competition year. So at the end of 1995, As long as the clubs, in the meantime, hadn't put in a submission for entry into the following year's competition, they were deemed to no longer have an obligation to the league. So there is a wrinkle there, and that is that most club constitutions had an article that they were affiliated with the ARL or the New South Wales Rugby League. So you can remember the, the situation in Newcastle where in order to jump to Super League, they had to have a you know two thirds majority and a member's vote <laughs> but and this was argued by Bechetette as showing a, an obligation between the clubs and the league, but the appeal judges disagreed and actually said that that strengthened the case against the league because it was reinforcing this tight control that the league imposed over the clubs so in the appeal judge's word, it reinforced the absence of mutual trust and confidence characteristic of fiduciary relationships.
0: Mm.
1: One interesting qualification with that is the intellectual property of the clubs. So that was a separate matter that wasn't up for argument in this case. So basically, by the rules, Canberra had obligations to the ARL for the 1995 season. So for example, if Canberra decided not to enter the following year's ARL competition by the appeal judgment they were able to do that they could go and play in whatever competition they wanted to but if they wanted to play as the raiders in green with the viking logo that was not so clear cut because the league had this relationship with the ip of the clubs so that would need to be tested elsewhere in court and i guess that's why you you saw the kind of the you know the clean skin jerseys in early 1996 and the idea that it would be the Canberra Super League and Brisbane Super League, you know—you weren't seeing the Broncos at that stage. And the last thing on this is something we've talked about before, which is the fact that when the league tried to bring in the draft in the early 90s, they changed the terms of player contracts so the league was no longer a party to player contracts. So that meant that basically any player who hadn't signed an ARL loyalty agreement, was similarly free to play in the new competition. So they were bound to their clubs because they were signed to the club, not to the league. So there wasn't going to be an issue with the clubs being free but players being tethered to the ARL. What a mess. So I I just wanted to touch on a, a couple of other aspects of this fiduciary idea because at times it feels like the appeal was contested on completely different grounds to the first case. I'd expected simply like a repudiation of the Bichette judgment, but it added all these new elements to the argument and this fiduciary duty was the defining factor, it seems.
0: Well, it goes to the argument again. Did he purposely, Bichette being he, circumvent some of the aspects of the case to get a result? It's a grave allegation against a judge, but...
1: Well, I was going to say, where do you stand on that?
0: I can't believe a judge would do that. You know, to get to that level, you've got to be totally, totally legit guy, you know?
1: I agree, but then when it becomes such a big part of News Limited's appeal, is it a part of the appeal because that was one area that wasn't sufficiently tested by Bachette in their eyes and, and therefore it was ground they could cover? Or is it.
0: Well, there's two other possibilities there's A, it was just his opinion, and B, it might have been incompetent you know like th- th- there's two possibilities mm. but you know without being experts in the area we can't really judge but it's um yeah. it just seems like you yeah, like you said the appeal's so different <laughs> it's like did he purposely just think yeah the third one is i'm just going to get these bastards and um if it gets overturned so be it but i'm going to get my pound of flesh <laughs>
1: So see, that's very much rugby league thinking. I I can't (laughs) believe that (laughs) that was (laughs) the way I said
0: that was the person who's thought that before, you know. But um, (laughs) yeah, I can't believe it either that a guy could be at that level and like judges don't get selected just off the street. They've got to be like having you know exemplary record.
1: Yeah, yeah, Uh, and I kind of sympathise with how shocked everyone on the ARL side were because it is so different like it it really is like astounding how different the conclusions are
0: 100 nil to um 98 nil
1: yeah yeah but so basically every argument news put forward about fiduciary duties was accepted by the judges so the fact that the ARL didn't evenly distribute the league's revenue and at certain points in time had made the decision to build up its cash reserves at the expense of you know, paying out clubs that weakened the idea of a mutual business partnership. The idea of goodwill you know, we've discussed in the McDonald's context. So the argument was that there was a collective between the clubs, so they all benefited from playing in the league, and you know the Tigers benefited from the Broncos' success, and and all of that side of things.
0: And the Broncos benefited from whipping boys as well. It was like everybody benefited.
1: Yeah. And the appeal judges didn't find against that, but they argued that this was separate to the idea of fiduciary duties. They said that many non-fiduciary relationships generate goodwill in the sense of enhanced business reputations. So that was put to one side. And finally, it was found that the fact that clubs were competing each other, competing for players, competing for sponsors, competing for money, competing on the field, that further weakened this argument because they were in direct competition. And you'll remember in the original case, Burchett found that clubs were not in competition with each other. If you go back to the bananas versus apples argument, which was used as a legal precedent. So which was absurd but, in this case. Yeah. So the appeal judges found that bananas very much were in competition with other bananas. So as I said, they were, you know, competing for sponsors, they were competing for fans, they were competing for TV.
0: Well, some clubs were competing for players against each other, but over half the CEOs were uh, not poaching off each other yeah. because their wives <laughs> play Bridge on Friday. But... Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but even the fact that rationalisation had been talked about and, the, you know, the Newtown had gone, they'd tried to get rid of West. You know, the Bradley Report and a view that the number of Sydney clubs wasn't sustainable, that meant that... Clubs were actually in competition with each other for their continued existence. So how could you have this fiduciary duty when at any point the clubs, you know, could be told that there wasn't a place for them in the league?
0: Absolutely. It's hard to disagree with the appeal findings, like on common sense grounds, little alone legal, but there's still the the morality thing where they owed them a moral duty. <laughs>
1: We've actually got some more to say about that because that aspect of morality did play into some of the discussion about the case. So I might just park that for now because there's some very interesting discussion in that respect. Mm. But So it was ultimately on this idea of competition that the loyalty agreements were deemed illegal. They were found to restrict that competition.
0: Well, just like for blokes on the street, if they're always holding a stick to you, saying, We're going to kick you out if you don't do this, that, and the other, and then, but you can't leave. <laughs> you
1: know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, it's just not logical, is it? I like this analysis from Jeff Wells, which I'll read out the quote, but basically, in the Herald, Wells was saying that, you know, take the emotion out of it, the law is the law. He wrote, Sport is part of the economy, and it's supposed to be a free market economy with room for competition. You might not have believed it at the trial listening to Bob Ellicott, his pendulous eyebrows quivering with indignation <laughs> over the intervention of the carpetbagger, selling the ARL to Justice Burchett as some kind of Corinthian joint venture like his school tuck shop.
0: <laughs> that may be the best English we've heard in the whole series.
1: We've said this before, but the quality of journalism in this era was just so much higher than it is today.
0: How brilliant was that? It's just amazing.
1: So, Bachet's judgment was roundly rejected by the appeal judges and just reading the document, it's so much different in tone to the Bachet judgment. So, there are like absolutely none of the moral assertions we get in the first judgment and it's very subtle, it's very dry but you can sense some bemusement at some of Burchett's findings over the course of the document. But the tone's so dispassionate, but, so there's no, like, gotcha moment to extract as evidence. It's it's just a sense you get over the course of reading the 277 pages.
0: But, like, that level of judge isn't, you know, a gotcha-type guy or a sink-the-slipper guy. <laughs> they do it very subtly.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Weber was criticising the actual character of some of the... Super League antagonists and praising the character of of Arthurson and Quayle, you don't see any of that in the appeal judgment. Like That was completely left out of it. And when you talk about morality, the criticism of News' tactics, which was a big factor in Pachette's judgment, was deemed completely irrelevant in the appeal. So the one quote I pulled on this subject is, The critical question is whether news tactics and conduct bear on the issues that must be resolved on this appeal. In our view, the probity of news's conduct and tactics is not central to the questions that we've had to decide on this appeal.
0: Just a total shutdown now.
1: Yeah. So basically leave aside the fact that Peter Moore is corrupt, that was deemed not relevant. And there was some bemusement from the ARL that, oh, like, they're not even challenging the fact that they called bullfrog corrupt. And it's like, well, they're QCs who don't particularly care about the reputation of Peter Moore. That they're, they're mounting a legal argument.
0: It'd be like challenging whether the sun comes up every morning.
1: <laughs> so I think it's important to add some context as to how it could differ so much between Pachet and the appeal, and it basically all came down to that broad versus narrow view of competition. So, by sticking to a narrow interpretation of the law, and it's just a different interpretation of the law, ultimately, that is what ultimately decided the case. So, they viewed competition narrowly. Burchett took a broad view. Burchett rejected the idea of exclusionary provisions. The appeal judges said they were exclusionary. So it's hard to square for a layperson that it basically all just comes down to different interpretations of the same facts.
0: Yeah, but I mean, compared to our Burchett episode, this one seems far more logical to the ear.
1: Yeah, I have to say, it made a lot more sense to me reading this. I was more persuaded by this argument, so...
0: Well, it's a step up in class in legal minds too, I mean, it's the next level up, so you'd expect it to be a bit yeah. more coherent?
1: Yeah, true. One thing I didn't get is the fact that once the orders were overturned, so of the 37 orders, 36 were overturned. So the only one that remained was the fact that the ARL was owed damages due to the fact that the Super League clubs were in violation of their contractual terms for the 1995 season. That meant that the ARL was entitled to damages, and as the law works, Chet had to be brought in to assess the amount of those damages. Like it just seems a bit like rubbing his nose in it. Like why does he have to be the one to to decide this?
0: I always think about this how do they show up in the chambers after the decision gets overturned yeah. the next day? <laughs> like...
1: So there was a fiduciary duty for that 1995 season that the clubs weren't upholding. So I wanted to turn to the reaction in the courtroom and I'm going to give some Credit to Peter Fitzsimons at this point because I thought his account of the reaction in the court was quite good. So we'll throw Fitz a bone in this instance. Ken Arthurson's knuckles were white. So tightly were his fingers intertwined. John Quayle moved fractionally back into his seat. It was the beginning of the end. For the next 10 minutes or so, Justice Lockhart, in maddeningly neutral tones for a judgment of such enormous ramifications, proceeded to tear the heart out of the Australian Rugby League competition.
0: Nice picture. Um, I can just picture Quail there just thinking about lining up Justice Lockhart and just driving <laughs> him, cutting him in half.
1: <laughs> and Arco's account of the same moment was, I got the drift straight away when the reading of the judgment began. Then the smirk started to appear on the faces of those in the other camp. On and on it went, astonishing, unbelievable, genuinely shocking. <laughs> I, I do like very much feel sympathy for Arco, but you have to put his account of that in context. So was he smirking when the ARL won the first case? You know, Jeff Prenner on the steps outside the courtroom telling journalists whether they were in or out, you, you know, like... yeah to the victors go the spoils
0: the winners call it smiling the losers call it smirking
1: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly
0: <laughs> so was mario cold when he was nude or <laughs>
1: <laughs> i think thankfully no one asked him to live up to his side of the bargain there <laughs> but so it it was vindication for news limited jonathan Eskovic, who was in the courtroom it was reported broke out in a broad grin and Later, at a victory party, some of the Rebel Club officials came up to apologise to him. Cronulla's Shane Richardson admitted that they believed Super League wouldn't win the appeal and they blamed Atanaskovich for bringing them into the whole legal mess.
0: (laughs) Well, thankfully for Richo that our Mexican brothers are known for forgiveness...
1: Is is there anyone who has been treated with less respect in this whole saga? Like Mr. Bean, John the Mexican, being basically blamed for the whole business from the the Super League clubs? Yeah,
0: the guy with the best brain in the whole thing is uh, treated the worst, (laughs) of course.
1: So we'll turn to the instant reaction, starting with the winners. I have to say, Super League were much more gracious in victory than they were in defeat. Like, there was a real effort to be magnanimous, and I think there's some obvious reasons for that that we're going to expand upon in part two of this chapter. But basically, almost instantly, there was a sense that this wasn't the end of the saga that two comps couldn't hold.
0: I mean, it still leaves a bad taste in the mouth to Joe Average. Like, you, you watch that as a Rugby League fan, and you can't swear the fact that these clubs just bit the hand that fed them for so many years, you know?
1: Yeah, Yeah, and something that always struck me in reading all this, like this line from Laurie Daly is an example. In the immediate aftermath of the judgment, he said, I hope both parties would come together and sort this thing out. And that's straight after the fact. You remember how obnoxious some of his statements were earlier in 1996? So there's none of that here. But it's just that players and clubs seem to have this sense of you know well you guys have got to fix this yeah, like yeah. A- as if they had no agency in the whole saga <laughs> yeah of course
0: <laughs> of course yeah but also in rugby league once someone goes you know what well, i've had enough of this and they can just change on a dime and it's time to get together you know like
1: yeah yeah and uh, that's basically the way it played out obviously we had the 1997 split season so it, it wasn't able to be worked out in time but it wasn't a straight line throughout the year, but you always got a sense that both parties were working towards the eventual reunification. So, as I said, Super League were a bit more magnanimous. They were still, you know, taking the odd shots here and there, the ARL doing the same on the losing side, but you didn't get the bravado in the press that you did in the aftermath of the original judgment.
0: And there's one reason for that: is you've got News Limited executives doing the talking instead of rugby league men. <laughs> That's why.
1: Yeah, 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 and, and- I'm sure the uh, the, the <laughs> rugby league
0: people on the Super League side were sticking the slipper. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's turn to the ARL side. So obviously the ARL were the big losers, but they weren't the only losers. So one which I think is interesting, and I, I just want to mention: I don't want to expand on it in any length, but. When you think about Rugby Union, they could have had Rupert Murdoch to themselves. So they're one of the big losers in this situation because presumably News Limited would have moved on from Rugby League if they'd have lost and Super Rugby would have had the Murdoch money and TV focus all to themselves.
0: I guess that's a silver lining for us, isn't it?
1: I was going to say, even ARL diehards to this day should maybe see some positive out of losing that court case. The other uh, big loser was Ray Hadley, who was forced to make an on-air conversion. So on his radio show, he said, the full bench of the federal court says the future is Super League, and I'm afraid we have to like it or lump it. In my case, I'm going to like it. It doesn't matter whether your sympathies are with Super League or the ARL. The battle is over.
0: Rock-solid, Ray.
1: (laughs) Uh, That was George Pegan's assessment, who said, gee whiz, Ray, I thought to myself, I'm glad I'm not fighting alongside you in the trenches. (laughs) Meanwhile, at Super League, Ray Hadley was given a new nickname, Olga, after Olga Corbett, due to his backflipping prowess. <laughs> but I've got to give a defense of Ray Hadley here, because, like, yes, the backdown made him look foolish and damaged his credibility, but the alternative was to double down with intransigence. And knowing Ray Hadley, you would have expected that from him.
0: How much of that backflip do you think was to avoid the talkback callers
1: i think he was probably more concerned with losing access to rugby league and figured he needed to smooth the waters with super league but i think there's something to it just to shut those listeners up a bit
0: even for someone as obnoxious as him to listen to that every day man i can't believe that but had it right
1: (laughs) (laughs) but let's turn to the arl at that point because in some ways their reaction isn't much more sophisticated than those talkback callers. And i got to say, I feel so much sympathy for Ken Arthurson, the man, a man who has given his life to rugby league and loves the game. But Arco, the administrator, I have less sympathy for. And I don't believe some of his emotive response here stands up to scrutiny beyond that personal hurt he was feeling. So, So in his book, when he's talking about the appeal he called Bachet a respected and reputable judge. Meanwhile, he called the appeal judges these blokes. <laughs> That's not a way to win them over. So he said Bachet had sat and watched and listened and soaked it up for 51 days. Now these blokes, without <laughs> access to the nuances of the evidence, had thrown every bloody thing out the window. My lord. I would hope at appeal... That they did in fact have access to the evidence, <laughs> and again, like there's just a, a failure to understand what the argument was being fought over. So he said, Obuchet, he'd taken in every moment, every piece of evidence, observed the body language. He knew who was telling lies and who wasn't. Which, as we've said, ultimately, who was telling lies was deemed to be not as important as. What is the law and how did various things that happen factor into the law?
0: It's not judge duty, it's bloody federal court.
1: Yeah, exactly. So he got it on the offensive in the immediate aftermath, talking about that, you know, the ARL will be much stronger and we've got the best players and the best teams, saying we'll appeal this. The lawyers have said there's definitely grounds and we've got a great chance. He then goes on to say, Mr. Packer has rung and told us we have their full support. And he believed that Nines' deal with Super League had been rescinded. So, uh, and, and Lucy will definitely let Charlie Brown kick the ball this time.
0: <laughs> Poor bugger. I don't have any worry about that response. Like, what do you expect? The guy was born in the 1930s or something, wasn't he? He's a rugby league guy from that era. Like, what's yep. he spo- How's he supposed to react?
1: Yeah, yeah. Reading his book, he's an open wound. And I'm very forgiving of some of those statements. But more to the point, I think those comments are indicative of the ARL response in general. Arko's comment, it was like playing the same team twice under the same set of rules, with the only difference being a new referee, winning 100-0 the first week, then losing 100-0 the next. And that kind of sentiment you could see in some of the other officials as well. So, uh, David Barnhill at the CRL said, "We're going into round three at one each. We'll be coming out even for the third round." <laughs> it's not a football match. It's it's not a boxing match. Like <laughs> the law works differently, and it just there was just this failure to understand that.
0: I would like to know, be a fly in the wall to see how the the legal teams tried to explain it to them and and how it was received. That would have been the ultimate.
1: Um, another of my favorite Arco statements. The appeal had been conducted on dry legal arguments, fine points of law, and arcane technicalities. Like, <laughs> criticising a court case for being judged on legal technicalities.
0: I'd like to know if he was accused of murder wrongly, whether he'd like to be, have it on a motion or, or the law.
1: Yeah, I know. And and that was just across the board. and And I understand it because... This chapter has been really hard for me to get my head around having no legal expertise whatsoever. Like, it's a different language at times. It's really hard to understand, and these are really complex matters that I think the general public doesn't really grasp. You know, like, the ARL going on about morality and...
0: That's 100% true. The public doesn't understand. Sure, like, um, we're sitting here reading it in the paper, but his $10,000-a-day legal team should be explaining it to him. Yeah, (laughs)
1: But I think just to close this part of the chapter, something that the appeals court said should have been understood by the ARL. And so in the appeal document, it said, a decision as to where the best interests of the game lie is not one that lends itself to judicial determination. It's quite a different question to one which asks where the best interests of the league lie. And that's basically what it all comes down to. Mm. Was this case helpful to rugby league? I don't know how you could possibly argue that anything in this saga was helpful to rugby league, but that isn't what was being contested here.
0: Even to round three, mate.
1: (laughs) So that is where we leave this episode. I understand this was a a more demanding listen than some of our episodes. It was really hard for me to get my head around it. I'm doing a call-out. I would really love to speak to one of our legal listeners who has some expertise in competition or corporate law that can maybe talk us through some of this. Uh, so if that is you, please get in touch because um, if this was really challenging to put together. I hope we've managed to put it in some kind of understandable terms.
0: I think you did, man. That was really fascinating.
1: I was like, really, I loved reading this appeal document. So once again, I'd, I'd urge everyone to go out and get the full context by reading it. In our next episode, we are going to be right back in our wheelhouse of rugby league men and look at how the clubs reacted, look at what happened as we prepared for two competitions in 1997. So um, I'm looking forward to getting into all that. In the meantime, you know what to do. If you've got anything to say to us, digest at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Get in touch. We'd love to hear what you think, and we will speak to you next time.
0: Toodaloo.